Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Apostle, and with me today is Don Sarah. Hi, Don. Hello. <laughs> it's so good to have you. I am very excited about this. Yay, me too. So I was introduced to you by the founder of the writing studio I work for. I remember her sending me a little, it was like a text message or an email, and she was like, so I found this person that I think you should like listen to and maybe connect with. And then I listened to your podcast and I was just like, oh, this would be amazing. I would love to meet this person and have this person be in my life for real and have um, have you as a guest on the podcast. So we got introduced and here you are. Here I am. I know. And it just felt like such divine timing because literally like the week before we got introduced, I was thinking to myself, there just needs to be more fat joy in the world. You know, like more of us maybe talking about it, creating it. I get introduced to you and I'm like, there's a podcast just for fat joy. Like, yes. So fantastic. Like aligning of the stars. That's a, that's amazing to me. I love that. There's so many of us having these thoughts about how do we bring more pleasure, delight, joy for fat people into the world. Like that makes me so happy. And I think I was like, please create your own version too. Like we, we just need lots of it. Like let's overpower people with fat joy. Yes, please. <laughs> Cause it's luscious and wonderful. <laughs> right. So Don, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, for the past almost 10 years, uh, have been doing work as a sex educator, a sex and relationship coach. Uh, I have been in grad school and now I'm doing also therapy in this space. And for me, my focus through all of that has really been on the nexus of body and pleasure. And of course, so many things that come off of that are trauma, relationships, eating disorders. You know, it's a complex space. But for me, as someone that's always been in a fat body, uh, really finding ways to bring real care and compassion to folks that often don't experience those things in care settings has been a real mission of mine. And that continues to grow and deepen. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, and your new business name, what it's Tend and... Tend and Cultivate Counseling. Tend and Cultivate. I love that combination. How did you come up with that? 
Well, one, I knew I didn't want a name that sounded like all the other like therapy and counseling centers out there, like flowing river or those kinds of things, you know, heal your heart counseling. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they're usually involved the word healing or trauma and heart or something like that. And I was just really thinking like, what do I actually do? What do I actually do with people? And it really falls into two buckets. The first is really tending to those wounds, those hurt places, the experience of ongoing oppression, the ruptures, the things that make us feel disconnected. And then I also really do so much work in supporting people to cultivate pleasure practices, to connect with joy, to move towards the things that they're dreaming for themselves, and to ultimately find ways to just really connect with agency, autonomy, sovereignty. So when I kind of thought about those two buckets, that tending cultivate kind of started emerging of we're tending the hard things, but also cultivating the wonderful, wonderful things. And we can do both of those things at the same time. Yeah, that's the part that I love that I don't know that people always know is that you can actually do both at the same time. It doesn't have to be, okay, I have to be fully healed. And then I can start to like live my life, try new things. It's like, no, 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 you'll be waiting forever. It's lifelong <laughs> work. So I love that you've, you just said that, that you can do both. Thank you. Yeah. And I also think like so often healing work, when we think about it, it's, it's the hard stuff, right? When we think about like trauma work, when we think about um, healing betrayals, we think, oh, this is going to be hard. This is going to hurt. I got to go to therapy. I'm going to cry. And yes, some of those things are true, but also healing work can involve all of the delight, the ease, the joy. In fact, sometimes that's the best way to move towards healing. So I like this, this invitation that it can be both challenging and nourishing tear-inducing and laughter-inducing. We don't have to choose. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Everything you're saying feels like a bomb for me because I'm one of those people where I grew up with this kind of ethos of if I'm not suffering, it's not worth it. And in order for my self-worthiness to exist, I must be striving and working. Like all like so much hardness, so much edge. And I've spent literally the last decade kind of unlearning that softening being okay with words like tender and surrender and like those were not in my vocabulary for about 35 years <laughs> rest what is rest now I'm like I'm like ooh, daily naps yes please um, so I think that's so wonderful that people can be exposed to that notion because it's it is really quite countercultural. yes yeah yeah it really is I mean um you know, there's, there's this real expectation that in order to be worthy of the good things, you're constantly pursuing, reaching, striving, doing, growing. Um, it's this endless pursuit of self-improvement. Healing work has become the new, you know, productivity jam. And um, that's just not how it actually happens. You know, when we think about a bone that needs to heal, it needs rest. It needs a chance to not have any weight on it or intense movement. There needs to be some downtime. And so I think, you know, being able to expand our capacity for the complexity is ultimately the work rather than I'm going to push, 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 push until I feel ready for good things. Cause you know, the thing we all at some point 
realize is then we never actually arrive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just, what you just said also made me think about how revolutionary it is to trust in the belief that we don't have to earn any of that. We actually do just get to rest and that gets to be okay. Yeah. But these bodies of ours are like simultaneously strong and so fragile. Right? Oh, I feel, I'm feeling fragility these days. Let me tell you. I turned, I, I'm about to be 43, but when I turned 40, my body was like, okay, we got we some go. things for you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Have you met perimenopause? Because I'm on the way. <laughs> right? Oh my God. It is like, you have to. I have to laugh with my friends about this because it's like, we're like, and now, and my friend the other day was like, and now like my elbow and it's like the most random body parts suddenly misbehave in weird ways. And you're like, what's happening right now? The wilderness of the body. (laughs) Right? Oh my gosh. So I, as you know, I always ask about people's journey with the word fat. So take us through your story, Don. You know, like most people, I would say, unless they're raised around folks who are already inside fat fat activism, like most people growing up, fat was the worst thing you could be. You know, my parents certainly had an intense relationship with dieting. I was put on diets from a very young age. um, And fat was just the only use for fat was either to talk about like nutrients and food or as something that was really insulting. And as I hit puberty and my body started to actually grow in size into like plus size ranges, any word that moved me away from fat was where I wanted to be curvy, plump. I didn't ever really love that one, but it was better than fat. Uh, fluffy, those kinds of things, you know, just something that didn't align me with that word. And I really struggled. I had, you know, a relationship with an eating disorder for a long time. I really believed the only way that I could be worthy of love, of belonging was to be the quote unquote good fatty, to be in constant pursuit of not being fat. Uh, to constantly be, you know, trying a new kind of movement or exercising or fasting or whatever the really toxic behaviors were. And then I ended a seven-year relationship um, and really was putting myself out into the world for the first time in a really long time and feeling terror, like actual terror that someone would see my body and run the other way. And it was such an awful feeling to realize like I actually am experiencing terror at someone just seeing me. And right around that time, I read an essay by Jess Baker, militant Baker way back in the day. And it was just this like 10 things nobody tells fat girls. You know, and it was a little blog post. It was before the book had come out and I read it and something about that struck me because it was the first time I had come across somebody owning the word, being amazing and like speaking truth 
without shrinking from it, without apologizing. And it just like something in me went, I wish I was like that. And so I started following Jess and doing more reading. And then that led me to so many other amazing fat activists. And then I got connected with the Center for Body Trust, Hillary Canavy and Dana Sturdivant, and started doing some body trust workshops. And that really started coming together in a new place for me where I started really embracing fat community, fat activism, the language around fat, studying the history of fat activism, exploring body trust, and how to be in relationship with my body uh, in a way that was trusting and open and um, nuanced and imperfect. But for me, fat became something that was such a core part of my identity a way of not apologizing for the things my body needed to do. And it drew to me people who also really got it and did not see my body as an exception, but rather exceptional part of who I am and how I showed up. And so it's been fantastic that for the last, I want to say, you know, seven or eight years, I've just felt so embraced really because I allowed myself to move towards what is true about my body. And then that connected me with just so much softness and support and rage and activism and all of the wonderful things that I'm doing now. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I love how you included the word imperfect and nuanced, words imperfect and nuanced, because I think whenever I ask this question, and I've asked it of lots of people now, I guess it's from a place of privilege we sit now, like having kind of done that journey. But it's it's hard too. It is imperfect. And I've had guests who are like, I'm still not there yet. And that's great too. Like, I think it it's just, it continues. And when you say you started turning towards that word, it really had me think about moments where you may still turn away does that still happen for you? I think the places where I'm aware of how the word may land, because it's not so much that I'm uncomfortable with the word, it's that I am aware of other people's discomfort with the word, that there are other people I'm encountering for whom that word is terrible and horrifying. And so that's most often in like medical settings, uh, sometimes that happens if I'm like in a professional setting and I'm dealing with someone that's like, say, a banker or a real estate agent. They're in a very, you know, um, straight sized body and they're kind of not involved in activism. I'm aware that some of this language is pretty specific to a certain kind of community and, and people. And so, um, I don't necessarily not use it, but sometimes I'll use it and then assess the response and kind of offer a little bit of a explanation. Um, I have in recent years just gotten so much more unapologetic about like calling ahead and saying like, Hey, I'm in a fat body. We've got five coming in for brunch. I need to make sure at least one chair has no arms. Can you do that for me? Or I put that on the reservation form. You know, it took me years even after I was embracing the word before I was able to start then advocating for my fat body. You know, there's a like, I like the word in the community, but I'm not ready to take up that kind of space. 
Um, but the work still lands in specific ways with certain folks. Also, if I'm working with folks around eating disorders, there tends to be quite a very intense repulsion around the word fat. And so that might be the one place where I am not using that particular word unless they're asking me about my identities. And then I'll use that word because it's mine. Um, but if I'm talking about bodies in general, I may not use that word like when I'm doing like eating disorder recovery work. Right. See, nuance. Nuance. Yeah. Can I, I just have to brag for a second because for, I guess I, I was surprised by this, but I think it was for the first time I called and made a, made a reservation at a restaurant and said, but I stumbled when I was saying, cause it was the first time I was like, yeah. So do I, the, the gentleman was like, would you like a booth? I said, yeah, a booth, but does the table move? And he was kind of confused about why I'd asked that because he goes, oh, I, I don't know. I said, cause I need, I need to make sure and what I wanted to say was, I need to make sure my boobs aren't resting on the table is what I wanted to say. And then I was like, no, don't say that to this guy. Like, I don't know if he's going to understand what I'm actually trying to say here. So I stumbled. It probably took me like two minutes to get out. Like, hey, I just, I'm in a, and I couldn't, I didn't say the word fat. So I have to think about that a little further because this was literally last night. And because I was so conscious of not wanting to like ruffle his feathers. And then I'm like, oh my God, but, but. I use this word all the time. I use, I throw it at doctors now. I'm like, don't say the O word. I, you use fat with me. Like, but it was a surprise. I think I got caught up by suddenly I was like bashful or something, but it felt good to just to own the request as messy, as imperfect <laughs> as it was and say, look, this is what I need. I need a booth. I would love a booth if the table in the middle moves so that there's room for my body or a table with chairs that have no arms. And it felt really good. And I, I think that was the first time I've done it just because actually we haven't really been going out a lot. <laughs> so I don't think, I can't remember the last time I made a reservation. So I think maybe that's why, but yeah, I think I need to do it again and get into practice because I was so aware that I was awkward as hell doing it. <laughs> which surprised me. You know, the first time, it's also interesting to notice like my own journey with others supporting my body because about five years ago, I went to a um, writers and book conference that happens here in Vancouver with a friend of mine. And when we walked into the theater, she noticed before I did that I would not fit in the theater seats. And she immediately went over to the conference organizer, pulled them to the side and said, my friend's comfort matters to me and she will not be comfortable in these seats. What can we do? And I stood there like, what is happening? I had never ever had someone think about my comfort and then take action, never. And I was stunned. And in that moment, I realized, you know, a couple of years ago, that would have horrified me. I would have been absolutely horrified that someone thought, I don't fit in a space and I need some kind of accommodation, you know, because more than anything, at certain points in my life, I just wanted to fit in, not be seen, you know. But by then I had done enough work that I was starting to kind of think about things like that, but I hadn't actually done it. And when she did that so unapologetically, I felt one, so loved, like so loved, because then I spent the next three hours comfortable 
and enjoying it. And they did something for me. And I didn't stand out. Not everybody was staring at me. And that's when I was like, I can ask for these things. And so then I started not only asking for those things, but telling my other friends what she had done. And then they were like, hey, I want to do that for you. Like, if ever I forget or you need some support, let me know. And since then, more and more people have been like, hey, I got to the restaurant early and got us a booth that's got like a nice wide seat or, you know, those kinds of things. And so now it's not just me trying to do that. It's multiple people in my life. And that feels like care, you know, receiving so much care and love. And I love being in that place. And it breaks my heart that so many people don't feel worthy of that. Right. I just, I'm going to like throw a challenge out to the listeners, which I don't know if I've ever done before, but here it is. Challenge. Um, yeah. Um, share this story. Share what Don just said with your people. Cause the way your friend said it, Don, was so perfect. My friend's comfort. It's not like, Hey, my friend's fat. She won't fit. It was like, Hey, my friend's comfort matters to me and she's not going to be comfortable. What can we do? That's so beautiful. So, all right, everyone listening, if you're fat, tell your people, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to do the same. Because you know what? I, I was just realizing, so I, my husband has blue eyes and his eyes are more sensitive to the sun than mine. When we go to a restaurant, I always take the seat facing the window because it doesn't hurt my eyes and for his, it does. I do that for another friend who's blue eyed. I have another friend who I accommodate in other ways. Like I actually do this for lots of other people, but I've never experienced them and these people if I asked them they would do it because they love me but I've just never thought to ask yeah oh I love it I want my body cared for by others (laughs) so good Don I love it um I feel like this is a perfect space to kind of get into this idea of body trust of how do we trust our bodies. I mean, we just described a scenario where we walk into a restaurant or we walk into a theater and our body doesn't fit. And then suddenly I know in the past I'd be hating on my body, not trusting my body. So yeah, talk us through a little bit about this disruption that happens with our bodies. Yeah. So for folks who aren't familiar, Hillary Knavey and Dana Sturdivant have this beautiful paradigm and framework that they call body trust. And you can take all kinds of online workshops, in-person retreats. It's just beautiful work. But what it really comes down to is recognizing that we are born trusting our bodies. When we are born, we reach for what we want. We cry when we're hungry. We stop eating when we're full. The end. You know, it's not complicated. We're not wondering, should I cry when I'm hungry? Um, should I keep eating even though I don't want any more? Those things get introduced either through trauma or just growing up in a world that really um, sees bodies as something untrustworthy, that sees only certain bodies as worthy. There are intense multiple hierarchies around ability, race, culture, size, you know, age. And so as we grow up, if we have caretakers who are, you know, doing the very best that they can, and so we're pretty much getting our needs met, we are going to start moving around in the world and seeing who is centered and who is not. Who's the lead in the TV shows and the movies? Who are the superheroes? 
Who are the funny sidekicks? Who are the villains? We see the friends and where the bullying gets directed. And then our parents and their stories, what gets said and what goes unsaid. And as we grow up, we are trained, we are trained to start looking outside of ourselves for the answer. And it starts young. You know, in kindergarten, we're taught we have to raise our hand to ask to go to the bathroom. We're told to sit still when our bodies really need to wiggle. And so all of these things are happening where these people who are much bigger than us and who can literally control us teach us we have to ask them for the things our body is just naturally saying, hey, I could use a little wiggle. I could use a little shake. I could use a rest. I need to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. I don't want to eat right now. And there's reasons, you know, why adults do that for kids, because there's all kinds of things happening. It's complicated. But ultimately, what happens is over and over and over and over again, we're taught that other people have more information about our body than we do, and that our bodies are not trustworthy. And then there's so many more complexities on top of that with oppression and class and things, you know, food insecurity and it's just, you name it, you know, the medical industrial complex, comparing all bodies and giving them labels. And so it gets to a point where we don't really believe or know how to listen to our bodies in most cases. We're taught to grin and bear it. We're taught to be seen and not heard. We're taught that we can be too much, too needy, um, that there is a limit to what we can eat and that it says something about us when we choose certain foods. And over time, we get to a place where we just feel utterly lost and we're constantly chasing the answer. But that answer always is in somebody else's hands, which usually means it's tied to somebody else profiting off of it. Right. And this is, I think this is true for a, like, not just fat bodies, but like all of our bodies. We all go through this process. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's similar, you know, like Bell Hooks has talked about like the first victims of patriarchy are boys and men. And it's same, you know, when we're talking about body-based oppression, it's rooted in anti-blackness. It's rooted in classism and bodies that are thin, bodies that are you know, quote unquote fit and inside of kind of the, the definition of what a body should look like are also suffering because so many people are terrified of their bodies aging, of their bodies softening, of their bodies shifting shape, um, of their bodies becoming injured or sick. And those are all things that bodies just do. But we are taught to be terrified of those things because we know ultimately it moves us further away from accessing resources, accessing care, belonging, you know. And so the body trust framework is really about exploring your own body story. You know, when did you learn your body was a problem? When did the trust you had in your body become disrupted? What are all of those points in time when something happened that made you view your body as the enemy or your body is something to fear? And what would you like that relationship to be like? And I think one of the things that I really appreciate the most about the body trust framework is diet culture and wellness culture teach us to go for perfection. 
they teach us that it's all or nothing. You know, if you've attended like a Weight Watchers meeting or anything like that, you know that if you slip, you kind of have to go back to zero and start, you know, it's kind of that AA model where it's like, if you have one drink, you got to start your counter over at zero again. And that teaches us that we have to be all in or we're failing. And the body trust paradigm says, go for a C minus. Don't go for the A. Go for a C minus. Go for good enough. You know, start really investigating the relationship you have with perfectionism, with, you know, cheat days. And what if it's just good enough that there starts to be a lot more space, a lot more energy, a lot more ease, so that my mental capacity, my time isn't just in pursuit of what am I going to eat? How much is that going to cost me? How much exercise do I have to do? How does my body look in these ways? When all of that gets freed up, you have so much more time and energy for creativity, for connection, for love, for enjoying your life. So that C minus really, really, really helped me to move away from the rigidity. And then the other thing that they talk about a lot, and this is terrifying for most people, is unconditional permission. You have unconditional permission to want whatever it is you want. Now, a lot of people, when they hear that, think unconditional permission means it's a free-for-all and you do all the things you want. But that's not reality. Reality is unconditional permission to want, and I think that this applies to so many arenas as a person that works a lot around sexuality and pleasure, 100% applies there too. When we are afraid of wanting something and we try to push it down and lock it away, it takes up more and more space and it also becomes something twisted, you know, something much more complicated and dark than it needs to be. Versus if we just acknowledge like, yeah, I could totally go for a warm cinnamon bun right now. That sounds so good. I have permission to want that warm cinnamon bun, but can I have a warm cinnamon bun right now? No, I'm in an interview with you. Uh, I might be driving somewhere and I've got a, you know, deadline that I've got to arrive by, but I'm allowed to want it. I'm not wrong for wanting it. It doesn't necessarily mean I get it. Maybe I do, but the wanting isn't the problem. So I can validate myself, right? I can validate that I want uh, a bowl of Doritos that would fit my whole body. Yes, please. Does that mean that's actually what I'm going to do? No. If the next time I'm at the store, Doritos sound good, maybe I'll get them. If at that time they don't, then I don't. But I'm allowed to want that. I can say, yes, body. Oh my God. I totally could go for that super yummy eclair. I've got a craving for chocolate. Mm, Chocolate is good. Can't have chocolate right now. I do have coffee. How's that? And then after I'm out of this interview, if you still want chocolate, we'll see if we've got any chocolate in the house. So there's a difference between action and just self-validation and compassion. And that's a part of turning towards ourselves that helps us to start building some of that trust. Yeah. I I think I'm really struck by this whole, (laughs) excuse me, pulling apart of the want from the action because I'm just realizing, oh, they're always like smushed together. It's like, I want like, I don't know, I want pizza. Oh, but no, 
we have chicken wings are like marinating right now, so I can't have pizza. I don't even examine the desire. So when we pull it apart in that way, when we separate out, create a bit of a distinction between the wanting, the desire, separating it out from the action, what does that, what happens in that space in between those two? What's actually going on for us? So the first thing is it communicates to our body that we hear it. Which is huge because if, because that's also reinforcing, I trust you, body. I hear you. Exactly. Right. Because like you just did with that example, like I could really go for some pizza, but we've got chicken wings marinating. We're going to have chicken wings. I'm going to move on. My body's like, did you even effing hear me? You know, and we do that with peeing. We do that with movement. I mean, with everything. We do that with sex. You know, like, oh my God, I'm so horny right now. I could totally go for like some hot sex with my husband, but maybe that's not possible. Maybe whatever, you know, but to be able to just be like, pizza does sound good. Ooh, I hear that. Next time we have the option to get pizza, I'm going to ask you if we still want it. Tonight we're having chicken wings. That's already underway, but I hear that desire for pizza. That does sound good. Is there something I can do with the chicken wings that kind of gets me a little bit close to that? Like maybe a little marinara sauce dip or something? You know, it gives me an opportunity then to explore different choices, to try on what I might want. You know, that kind of moves us towards a little bit of an intuitive eating perspective. But that pause of, of course, ooh, I hear you. That does sound good. Oh, can't make that happen right now, but I definitely heard you. And the next time I can make that happen, I'll just check in. And so now we've, we've got that dialogue started. Yeah. And I feel like I was just thinking when you were modeling that, I was like, that's ho- totally how I would do it for a friend. Like if a friend was like, Hey, I really want this to be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You do. I wouldn't be like, um, no, we're having chicken wings. I, I'm like, Oh, why would I? So it's like, I think I, I'll talk to about myself, but I, like, I, I think I know how to do that, but I don't, I don't do it for myself. I don't turn it inwards in that way. And imagine a lot of people listening are like, oh yeah, me too. And I'll bet for the friend, if your friend came in and was like, oh my God, I had the worst day. I've been thinking about pizza all day. And you're like halfway through making chicken wings. You would probably be like, oh my God, pizza does sound really good. I'm working on these chicken wings. Should I keep working on the chicken wings? Or should I stick these in the freezer, make them tomorrow, and we do the pizza thing right now? And then your friend would be like, oh my God, I didn't even think about chicken wings. Yes, let's do those, right? But you're having a dialogue and you're actually considering, do I have choices? And you can do that for yourself too. If you get a really strong craving for pizza in the middle of making chicken wings, why not pause? Do I have the money? Do I have the time? Is that possible? Is that something that other people in the house want? Maybe it's all no's, but that's okay. I heard you and I at least investigated the possibility because it doesn't have to always be a yes, right? And I think that's the thing that makes us feel like we we don't deserve the wanting is because if we get a no, right, then it feels like we've done something wrong. Oh, that's so good. Can you say that again? That's so powerful. Yeah, so we're so afraid of the no that we don't even allow ourselves to ask the question. Because ultimately what it is, is if I want this and I get a no, it can feel like a rejection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But 
Hmm. The, the desire is separate from the response. Right, right. I can want the pizza. Can I have the pizza or not? A different question. Different question. But I'm allowed to want the pizza. Then we get to go to the second step, which is, can I make that happen? Right. And suddenly the yes or no doesn't seem as big of a deal when it's not about me rejecting desire. It's about me acknowledging desire, but rejecting or accepting or modifying action. Exactly. Because the context does matter. And we can, you know, sit with that. But again, can I validate my, can I hear and validate myself and then consider the context and then go from there? Two separate things. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is so brilliant. Unconditional permission. I love that. As soon as you said that word, the first thing I thought was what always gets hurled at fat people who are active and with a voice, which is you're glorifying obesity. You know, I, <laughs> as if that thing scares us anymore. I know. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I'm just, I'm just thinking about that separation. That's so helpful to my brain. I'm going to practice this. Is there, is there a way to, to really bring this into consciousness? Is there kind of a practical way that we can do this? I think it kind of depends on the person, you know, like a little visual reminder could be helpful, posting some post-its somewhere, making a little, you know, like journal entry, having other people in your life help kind of invite in a dialogue. It's so helpful when you have people in your life who can kind of catch you downplaying what it is you want, you know? So if you're like, ah, oh, I kind of wish we had ice cream, but you know, it's okay. We don't have any ice cream. So let's do this other thing. If you've got someone in your life who's like, wait a minute, what if we got ice cream? Now you have the opportunity to actually ask yourself, do I really want ice cream? Do I want to extend the effort to get the ice cream? Is there something else? But I hear you that there's some part of me that's kind of interested in ice cream, right? So there can be, you know, partnerships that you invite folks into to help you with that. Little post-it notes, uh, little things. A journaling practice, I think, is another good one for people where they're just kind of like, what are some of the things I wanted today? And did I give myself permission? Why didn't I give myself permission? But even just having the consciousness, you'll start noticing over time. You know, again, we're going for that C minus. So it's not all the time. Just enough that you're kind of like, oh, I'm starting to notice some patterns. I'm starting to notice where I shut myself down. You know, and it's probably going to be around the things that deep down inside you think are quote unquote bad. Yeah. 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 Ah, oh, so smart. So powerful. I love it. I also want to ensure that we chat about this idea of like kind of diving a little deeper into pleasure, into taking up space with our bodies, especially fat bodies, especially marginalized bodies, um, why it matters. And also this idea of like kind of what we already started, this idea of a practice, like putting in place a practice to support ourselves in doing this more if we want to. Over the years... One of the things that I've come to realize is pleasure is one of the most crucial and important ways that we can exercise our agency and our autonomy. If I really truly have ownership over this body, if I truly get to choose what happens to it, who touches it, how I experience it, and this is how I experience my life. Pleasure is really a way of us 
owning that and saying, I get to decide. And I am probably not going to decide for bad, painful, awful things. Will those things still happen sometimes? Sure. Life is messy. But if I really am like, this is my body. Nobody else can tell me whether or not that tasted good. Nobody else knows what that touch felt like. Nobody else knows what is happening for me in this moment and how I experience this emotion. Pleasure is really how we can exercise that ownership and arrive in the things that are so good about having a body. Because pleasure really is about three things. Arriving in the present moment, pleasure only ever happens in the here and now. Being with our senses, pleasure emerges through the senses. And taking into consideration the context, right? It's almost impossible to experience pleasure when we're under threat. But if we feel safe enough, we're probably going to be able to access some amount of pleasure. So if those three things are going on, and this is about my experience, pleasure is the way that we can really say, my body, this is what feels good. This is what I like. Nobody else can know that. They can guess, and they might get it right some of the time. But pleasure is the ultimate expression of agency and autonomy. Oh, absolutely. I remember, maybe it was a couple of years ago, I first heard, this is like kind of when I was starting to do some anti-oppression work and learning like all the different like a lot of the different aspects not all I'm still learning but and I first heard the term pleasure activism I think from Kai Cheng Tan who I ended up doing a couple of workshops with and I was like oh and it didn't Adrian Marie Brown did she Adrian Marie Brown wrote the book yeah 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 and yeah and I was like Hey, I, I literally, I think I remember stopping and being like, hang on, hang on. My brain doesn't understand this, this, these two words together. Why do we have to become activists for pleasure? And I, I really struggled to understand. <laughs> and even just what I've shared in our conversation today, um, we can see why, because I was raised without ever considering pleasure. And so it just, my brain still struggles with this, Dawn. Like I'm still unlearning a lot of this. So why is it so hard? What have we done to ourselves that I can more easily embrace suffering than I can delight? I hate that. Who profits off of all of us suffering that way, right? I mean, capitalism asks of us to continually exploit ourselves until we're husks in service to moving money and resources up the chain. And folks who have power systems that profit from that don't want us to be focused on our pleasure because when I'm really turning towards what is my body feeling capable of today? What's my capacity today? It might not be working eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours. It might be, I'm working no hours, right? And so when we start really turning towards our experience, we start to notice the things we can't tolerate, the things that don't serve our bodies 
and the types of people we want to be and the relationships we need. And certainly like Audre Lorde talked about this and uses of the erotic, Adrienne Marie Brown, Kai Cheng Tom, so many people, Betty Martin has a fantastic book called The Art of Receiving, highly recommend. But there are so many systems that need us to stay separate from our experience in order for those systems to be upheld. And so we're taught that you don't do the fun stuff until all of the not fun stuff is done, but that's never done. You know, you all will all rest when X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z might not arrive for 10, 20, 30 years. Maybe it doesn't arrive till the end of the week. I don't want to live my life on hold. Yeah. It's that whole, like when I retire mentality. Exactly. Exactly. And what complicates it is the truth is we do exist inside of capitalism, right? So we do, most of us, we do have to work and hustle to get our very basic needs met. And so for me, adopting a pleasure practice and really turning towards ourselves isn't necessarily about totally blowing up our lives and like living off grid, you know, and growing all our own food and never interacting with systems anymore. It's really about how can I find little moments throughout each and every day to turn towards myself and ask, what am I experiencing right now? You know, what's the most beautiful color in this space? What's a song I would love to hear while I'm doing these things that I wouldn't necessarily choose for myself? How can I just take up that little bit of space over and over and over again? Because what's so profound to so many people I've worked with is often we think of pleasure either as a euphemism for sex, which really degrades how enormous and accessible pleasure can be. Or we think pleasure is when we go on vacation, when we have that big birthday party. You know, they're kind of these like singular big events. But then we have all this time between those things where we're checked out, in drudgery experience. Yeah, exactly. You know, or like numbing and distracting because things are so hard. And so what I try to invite people into is what if we had all of these little micro experiences of pleasure throughout our days that adds up to something extraordinarily meaningful. You know, if I can just notice the smell of the soap that I love for a few seconds, because that's inviting me again to be in dialogue with my body over and over and over again. And over time, we begin to find we want to take up more space in our lives. You know, we want to advocate for ourselves. We see that it really matters that we say, I want and I need, and I deserve. And then we start being able to accommodate other people saying those things. It's less threatening. But it is a process, and it is a practice, and it can just really be the small things rather than those great big promises that we make. And then if it doesn't happen, we feel really crushed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's so interesting, the three principles of this around, you know, arriving in the present and, or the first two, especially arriving in the present and kind of connecting to our senses because they're just such an easy way for us to, first of all, get present, second of all, to notice what's going on and that pause. It, as you were speaking, I was so 
like I could almost hear as if you were a meditation teacher, because this is what a lot of guided visualization and meditation and mindfulness practice is rooted in. But it also really struck me that, and I've, I've done, I, I have, I love apps. I love meditation apps. I use them like all the time, but they don't often include pleasure. It's all about getting present. And I love that word. I love, I even love the verb presencing. I'm sorry. I can't talk. I'm presencing right now. I just love, right. Um, but, I'm also, I, I don't know, there's some, there's, it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect there. Cause what I don't often hear about is, okay, we're doing this so that we can be in pleasure in our bodies. That pleasure piece is missing from a lot of, at least, you know, the apps that I use for meditation, which are the, you know, pretty big ones. It's pleasure is not often part of it. And I, I don't know. I have suspicions about why that might be kind of our puritanical culture around, again, this association of pleasure with sex and the erotic versus pleasure just actually being about being present, being attuned in our body, aware of our senses within a context. Is that, does that sound right? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, Adrienne Marie Brown talks a lot about like to really experience pleasure is to have a relationship with satisfaction, joy, and enoughness. Ooh, those are good. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because enoughness is really countercultural and anti-capitalist. What is enough? Not all that I can get, but what is enough that I am satisfied, that I'm moved, that I'm like, ooh, that was good. You know, enoughness is also a big part of like intuitive eating and body trust, um, trusting that there will be enough. And satisfaction, joy, you know, those things are part of what makes the hard things tolerable. Because I think there's often this fear that like, well, if I'm only focused on pleasure, then it becomes a little bit of that toxic positivity. And for me, a pleasure practice is just really about arriving in the moment and seeing what can emerge. If I'm curious, you know, what about this do I love? Is there something that's getting my attention? And as I stay open, I start noticing some wonderful things might be possible. Not always, and that's okay. And I think the other thing that's important to name is when we start turning towards our experience, we start feeling more. And when we start feeling more joy, more connection, more pleasure. We're also opening ourselves up to feeling more fully in all arenas of our lives. And so what surprises a lot of people over and over and over again is that as your access to pleasure increases, as you feel more, your grief arises. And so really a pleasure practice is also simultaneously a grief practice. And so it's not about turning away from, it's about, again, expanding our capacity for the complexity that I can grieve all those times I abandoned myself while simultaneously staying with myself here and enjoying this moment. You know, they both can be true. Yeah. The paradox of that is always so hard for us as human beings that we can hold both at this simultaneously of what feels oppositional. And it's, yeah, like, oh gosh, I feel like in my coaching practice, I'm forever talking about this with people. It's like, it doesn't have to be all or none either, or like, how do we actually hold both at the same time? And what's possible when we do that? 
Yeah. To me, there's such richness about the human experience that happens when we are willing to let the discomfort of those seemingly dueling experiences to coexist, you know, that I can feel the sadness, be moved by the grief, and also feel myself moved by that piece of music or sinking into the hand of someone I love who's touching me. Both of those things can be happening, and that's because we are wonderfully complex. And it does take practice because the temptation is to move away from the things that feel difficult. But then we also are moving away from pleasure. We're moving away from our experience. Yeah, yeah. For people who are fat, for people who live in marginalized bodies with marginalized identities, I just, I'm thinking about body, I'm thinking about trauma right now and how hard it is to, when there has been trauma, when there has been like the grief, oh, fuck, the grief can be just overwhelming, right? So like, what do we do then? How do we, how do we move towards it in a way that feels held and safe, really? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing is, it is so deeply liberatory for Black bodies, Indigenous bodies, disabled bodies, trans bodies, um, bodies that are, you know, financially disenfranchised, immigrant bodies, fat bodies, you know, for all of these folks who are literally experiencing ongoing violence and an attempt at ongoing erasure and genocide. What a liberatory practice to say, my pleasure matters. This body holds wisdom and deserves to feel good. The reality might be you're working three jobs, you're a single parent, maybe you're in a disabled body and you need a care attendant in order to get, you know, basic bodily needs met and you're still deserving and to be able to find little ways to just arrive for a few seconds, huge, a way of really claiming this is mine, you know, these systems are literally trying to eradicate me. And yet I can still appreciate, you know, the beautiful flowers, the sound of a partner's voice, you know, the smile on the face of a little one, those things matter and they add up. They also resource us. And I think that that's something that's so important is we, many of us are feeling completely overwhelmed and burnt out right now. Many of us are literally facing like attempts at eradicating, you know, disability, fat bodies, black and indigenous bodies, certainly. And we need sources of nourishment and resourcing to be able to keep going. And pleasure can be deeply resourcing. And it can also be really connecting, you know, to share and pleasurable experiences with people Many of us have had that experience of having like almost this collective orgasmic experience at a, like a really good concert, you know, where we're like all being moved at the same time. And it becomes something bigger than just your experience. Getting goosebumps even thinking about that. But I also think that it's really important that we um, know that almost all of us are carrying trauma. I I would say pretty much nobody escapes this world without trauma. 
yes, that trauma is different, impacts us at different levels, comes through intergenerationally in different ways. But for folks who really are in acute trauma, where arriving in the body just doesn't feel possible. And I've had so many people come through my courses and my work who have significant chronic pain. They live in pain bodies who are trans or non-binary and for whom being with the body feels almost unbearable. Those micro moments really are the important piece. And another thing is trauma really can make our bodies feel like an unsafe place to arrive. And so the smaller and the more titrated it is, the better. So it's less about, I, you know, as someone who's experienced like sexual violence and has, you know, PTSD, there have been times in my life where the thought of like going in and getting a massage have just felt unbearable and traumatizing you know, to, to be touched by another human being in that way felt so incredibly unsafe. That's a big ask. That's a really big ask. But can I, for just a second, on a cold morning when the shower's warmed up and I step under that warm stream of water, for just one second, can I be like, oh, oh, that warm water feels good, and then leave again? Can I, for just a moment, you know, when I walk around the corner and see those first little crocuses popping through the snow and be like, oh, and just like, they're so pretty, just for that moment, right? Those little moments are really you arriving in your experience. And that's a part of why I think um, pleasure is such a crucial part of trauma work and healing work. Because so often we're focused on all of the things we can't do, on all the things that hurt. And pleasure really invites us into not only the here and now, but what could be possible down the road. And so it really can be that small, that whiff of a little, you know, lavender bouquet or um, the sparkle in somebody's eye when you can tell they're sassing you. Just those little moments you can find your own way of making those possible, but they really can be just a microsecond. And over time, those get just a little bit easier. You find more options. If you get really curious, you'll probably be surprised by how many moments you actually have. You're just not really aware of it. And there, of course, is going to be some grief if even that feels really hard, but then that can be a wonderful place to just get some support and to have someone join you on some of that exploration. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love this idea of micro moments of pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. What an accessible way to bring that in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm just, it's so interesting listening to all this because I'm just thinking, of course, about myself as I always do. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's my pleasure? <laughs> and yeah. And, and when, so yeah. And like the messaging I received around pleasure growing up was always that I am too focused on immediate gratification because I've always been drawn to pleasure. So I always had to like control myself, too much immediate gratification. And also, and there this would, my, my mom would say this to me in Greek, which be to control my pathy, which is the Greek word for passions. And it was really always when I was pleasure seeking, I was being too much in pleasure. And it just is really kind of, I'm having this moment where all of this 
you know, I can hear the voice. They're like, it's rushing over me right now. And I'm like, oh yeah, I was taught to diminish that, that it is not to be trusted. Like, it's really clear where a lot of this comes from. I imagine as people are listening, they might have the their own versions of voices in their own minds. And, you know, and I know I, I have no anger towards my family. I understand where this comes from and their background. And again, talk about epigenetic generational trauma. We have lots of that. Like, so I understand it. And I love this gift of, I've done a lot of mindfulness work, but I don't think I've done as deep a dive on pleasure work. Like really thinking about allowing myself to move towards pleasure as opposed to, I think what I tend to do, I'm curious if this is often what happens for people. It's like, I'll allow myself this little bit here and this little bit there. And rather than just almost what I could imagine would be delightful is to like by default live from a place of presence and pleasure. Like I can't, I, I, my brain can't even imagine that possibility right now, but I can feel how, oh, how grounded, how connected, how that would feel so wonderful. And to be able to show up for other people from that place, I think would be amazing as well. Yeah. And I think that what you're saying is so important because it's not about like hedonism. It's not about performance. It's not about like me before everyone else. And it's super tempting inside of the systems we're in, especially if you're kind of higher up in like the privilege scale. You know, if you're like a white cis wealthy man, there are stories about pleasure means exploitation, hoarding, you know, taking because you just inherently are deserving because you're a better human being. This is not that. This really is what you just said about that presence, that groundedness. You know, when I'm really connected with my experience, that means I'm going to experience hard things, complicated things, things that are much. But it also, if I can just stay curious and open, there's so many more opportunities for that yummy yes. And this is why pleasure work is intimately tied with boundary work, right? Because if I'm present with my experience and I notice, ooh, that would feel really good. It's risky to ask if it involves somebody else, right? And if it doesn't feel good, it's also risky to say, I don't want that because it means being seen, being vulnerable, and the other person might have a reaction to that. And so some of this work is a visibility work. You know, it's being able to say, I really want that, knowing the other person might not. And that that doesn't mean the wanting was wrong. It just means they're having their own experience. Again, that separation. Or realizing, you know, that actually isn't something that I really want. Like I'm checking in with myself and I'm just noticing, no, I, I don't want to do that today. And that means facing somebody else's disappointment, anger, frustration. And again, those feelings are not bad. And your no is not wrong. Both can be true at the same time. But to really be from that grounded, centered place, it's not about extracting or taking or manipulating or trying to get, you know, those twisted kind of things that emerge. It's really just about being here and wondering, 
you know, ooh, would I like more? Would that feel good? Do I feel satisfied? Considering the context of this moment, you know, how would I like to be in relation with this person? Would I like more closeness? Would I like a little space? Would I like a foot rub? I get to notice those things about my experience. And then if I choose to enter into then some type of dialogue with other, and then it might be fulfilled, it might not, but that's separate again from me just being with my experience and moving towards pleasure again, doesn't always mean you're going to get it, but you're validating your own experience. And that takes so much of the charge off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm laughing in my head right now because I imagine the first kind of challenge to this that I might bring up would be, Oh my God, that would be so slow. That's going to take so much time. Like, right. Cause like we're, we're used to living where we don't pause. We don't slow down and think we haven't built in spaciousness. Most of us have not built spaciousness into our day for lots of reasons, you know, that we just talked about while we are in the machine and we kind of have to do things. So how, so if that is like a, Oh, but Don, I don't have time for that. Or how do I slow down that much? What, what would you say? Well, I would say two things. One, that's C minus. Right. We're not trying to do it all the time. Always right. The temptation is I'm going to all or nothing. If I can't do this all the way, I'm not doing any of it. And you miss out on so much. So what if it's good enough? I do it sometimes. That for me is such a permission slip. You know, what is just a good enough practice? How do I do this some of the time? When I have the time or the energy, do I need to change some things so that I've got a little bit more resource to be able to do this? You know, those kinds of things. A lot of self-compassion in that. And then the other thing is, as it becomes a little bit more practiced, you're able to connect with it with much less effort. But it does take practice, you know, and there will always be places, times, and people that move you way away from your experience. And for me, those are fantastic places for some real self-validation. For example, if I'm going to go out to lunch with my mom, just like in general, talking about moms, if I'm going to go out to lunch with my mom and what I know I really want is the lasagna, but my mom always comments on my body and what I eat, and then it turns into a thing. If in the moment I'm able to say, I know I want that lasagna and God, that would be so good. But I've had a really stressful week. I'm exhausted. I do not want to have to enter into that emotional labor with my mom. So the wisest choice I can make in this moment to protect my energy is the salad to avoid that whole rigmarole. And then afterwards, if I want more, I can give that to myself when my mom's not present. That ultimately for me is intuitive eating, body trust, and a pleasure practice all rolled into one. Oh my God. And it just takes a couple seconds, right? I just want to yell at my mom and order the lasagna to go. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it's terrible. (laughs) F you, lady. (laughs) I love this example so much because you're right. Like, oh my God, I just, it's so... I'm just so aware of how I still have so much work to do around like tenderness. Like that is a tender, gentle option 
of compassion for self that you just laid out. It's like, I don't need to have a fight. I don't need to do the emotional labor if I'm not resourced for it. So let me just do this. I'm not giving myself away. I'm not losing my power or my authenticity. I'm actually really honoring the multiple truths that are present in this moment. Yes. I am choosing myself. You know, I'm considering the cost of all the things. You know, for me, do I really want that rebellion? I'm feeling the rebellion. So I'm going to get the lasagna and let's have it out. Or am I pooped? And I'd rather just check in later and get like a yummy snack on my way home, have a nice time with my mom, have the salad, validate myself, and then afterwards be like, anything else feel good? And then I can give that to myself. And all of those negotiations, when we just start to get a little bit more practice, really only take a couple seconds. You know, so do I fly through my day for large chunks of time without being aware of my experience? Absolutely. And I also have so many moments throughout my day because I've done this for years where I just have all these little moments of delight and yes, and really thinking about what's my experience. Sometimes eating past full is the best choice because maybe it's a food you only get to have once a year and you just want to know. That is such a gift to self to choose that. And I think that's the thing that I just want everyone to keep coming back to is, am I listening to myself and considering the context with as much compassion as possible? Can I choose something rather than allowing it to kind of happen and be like a reaction? you know, that I'm doing unconsciously. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh my gosh. So good. I have so many notes for myself written down. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to say, I'm so glad that my partner and I are going to be working with you as our, as our coach slash therapist, because I'm, I'm just as, even as we're talking, I'm like, oh, this is where this comes into our dynamic in this way. And I'm like, I'm so glad that we get to continue this conversation in a therapeutic setting. Cause I'm like, yeah, we could, I'm so excited to work on this stuff further. So Don, let's talk about joy. Um, it's like the perfect topic for what we've been exploring. How do you stay connected to your joy? Okay. So one of my superpowers that I love about myself and seems to be kind of rare actually is I love play. It's like one of my core personality traits. And so every single day, I find big and small ways to play. So they can be just like little micro moments of, you know, like a silly little, I don't know, like grab of a butt and, you know, a sassy remark, or we play a board game or a video game or play with my cats. So for me, connecting with joy is really heavily influenced by the connections that are meaningful to me and finding ways to play. So I try to play every day, a couple of different ways. That's so great. And I love how, I love those examples. It was like, it could be a four hour board game or it could be a grab of a butt. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, or like we have these um, wool dryer balls. We've made up dozens of games with these little wool dryer balls, but sometimes it's just like poking around the corner and launching a missile of a dryer ball at Alex and running away. And then like we laugh, but we go right back to what we were working on. You know, so just those little moments are just like, 
that little like, ha, 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 ha. okay, back to my spreadsheet or whatever. Oh, so good. Again, it's like, almost like these micro moments of, of playfulness that can be, that can be present. Oh, so good. Oh, Don, this has been such a pleasure. Speaking of pleasure. I loved our conversation. I love that there's so many practical things for people who've been listening to start to play with. Of course, I'll include your information if anyone wants to reach out and connect with you further and the beautiful business that you're building. Yeah, I'm just so grateful. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. In their conversation with Don Sarah, there was such a focus on how pleasure is rooted in presence, in our senses, in enoughness and in joy. And it reminded me of this poem that's called Other Body Prayer by Dominic Parisian. Here it is. Oh, let us be like you, flawed, failures, singular and successful. None of us a credit or exception, stand-in or paragon, enough to be unremarkable and common as a cold, enough to make monoliths meaningless. Oh, let us be like you, atoms orbiting each other, subjects to the laws of gravity and attraction, chemical and true to our nature. Oh, let us be. Let us be. Let us be. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.